today on the Provoke and Inspire podcast. Nobody really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, that males and females are counterparts to one another. That's just how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To embrace a same-sex identity is implicitly to contradict that design. This is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. The Christian ethic actually expresses a very high view of the body. It says, no, we should respect our body when we frame our understanding of our sexual identity. All right. Well, I want to now welcome onto the Provoke and Inspire podcast, uh, Nancy Piercy. Uh, we are so privileged and honored to have her uh, join our conversation. Uh, she has a very lengthy and impressive resume, things that God has done through her. Uh, she has, according to uh, this one particular thing I read, she has been heralded as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual, which is uh, <laughs> a, a quite a mouthful, but that is uh, from the things I have read and experienced. That and before that, Chad oh. was the, the most preeminent female intellectual, <laughs> oh, which is kind of weird, Nancy but it's a good reason yeah, why we have you on here, Nancy, because there's some confusion. I'm sorry about that, Nancy. Uh, she has written hundreds of articles, authored uh, incredible books, and the book I want to talk about today uh, is Love Thy Body. I'm holding that up for our camera guy who's shaking his head at David's comment. I apologize in advance for him. Um, just to set up this conversation and then to uh, bring you in, and I'll definitely stop talking, we are uh, doing a, a series called Jesus in the Secular World based on the book that I just finished by the same title. Uh, and the whole heart of it is how can we be uh, effective and aware of, well, effective in reaching the secular culture. I mean, uh, unless you are very isolated, you're probably aware of the state of things today and the way people are uh, leaving God and the church behind. Uh, And with that has come all sorts of brokenness, the implications of these views that people are now uh, taking on. Um, and, and so the sort of the first thing we wanted to look at is is what are people outside of the church actually like? Often the church is accused of answering questions people aren't even asking. And so I think the first thing we need to do is really know who people are uh, in, in some of the often tragic uh, uh, implications of the things they believe. And one of them is the sexual brokenness of our day and age. Uh, and so this is certainly not an easy topic, but um, Nancy, I would love to I, I'm, thank you for being part of this, and, and we're yeah. looking forward to the, the wisdom that you have to bring to this conversation. So, so in long introduction, but thank you so much for, for coming on our podcast. Thank you so much yeah, for having me. You. I appreciate yeah. it. I appreciate what you guys are doing. Yeah, well, it's it's our privilege, and, and we're, we're glad to be in this with you together. So uh, I guess there's so many places that we could go with this, but one thing that you said before we started recording is we have to start with knowing who people are. Um, so maybe you could kind of just start there. Why why is that such an important message for followers of Jesus today who are trying to be relevant in reaching people outside of the church? It's really one of the key principles that every teacher, every speaker, every pastor follows. They all follow it. It's called know your audience. If you don't yeah. know your audience, you cannot craft your message in a way that meets their needs, their objections their preconceptions, uh, their questions. And so uh, it's, it's been a big, a, a major goal of my own 
to figure out what is your audience and who, if you want to speak to, well, Christians or non-Christians, how, yeah. how do they already think? And it's, for me, a big part of it, too, is that I left my Christian upbringing in high school and went through several years of being an agnostic and, in, you know, actively searching for truth. And as you, you know, we were talking about it before the interview began, uh, I eventually ended up at Labrie. Um, but that is another reason, and Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, and that's where I first encountered apologetics. I first mm. encountered people who knew how secular people think. That was what was so impressive when I went to Labrie the first time, mm. twice. I went the first time as a non-Christian. And what was so impressive about it was it was the first time I ran into Christians who understood the secular ideas that I was grappling with by that time. I had absorbed a lot of concepts from my culture and I mean, I'd left my Christianity behind and had no intention of going back. And so it was so impressive when I found Christians who could actually engage with the secular ideas that I was wrestling with myself. Mm. Yeah. So Nancy, can, can I ask how, I mean, in, you, I think that um, you're beginning to allude to this, but how in that space did you go from, oh, that's awesome. There's Christians that actually are at least trying to and grappling with challenges that, that the secular world is facing. At what point did Jesus meet you? And what was that like where you, you were like, okay, I, I'm actually going to take, I'm going to take on faith in Jesus, huh, yeah. even though I've been an agnostic now for several years. Yeah, well, I have to back up and tell you some of the questions that I had. Um, when actually my my questioning started about midway through high school, and all I was asking was, "How do we know it's true? How do we know mm-hmm. Christianity is true?" Um, I was going to a very secular public high school. All my professors or teachers back, all my teachers are, are secular. All my textbooks are secular, and it seemed like I didn't know anyone outside of our family who was a Christian, and it seemed like how do we know we're right and everybody else is wrong? <laughs> that seemed kind of presumptuous. So it started yeah. mm. just a simple question. How do I know it's true? And unfortunately, mm. there was not a lot of apologetics in the church back then. Certainly, my pastors couldn't answer the question. My parents couldn't answer it. Um, I, I talked to a Christian who was a um, university professor. And I thought, well, someone of his stature should have something substantial to say to me. So I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? And he said, works for me. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> That's it? Not, not the answer you were looking for. <laughs> I, I said, well, about basically, I said, it's not working for me. <laughs> right. I, I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean. And I thought, now I'll get some kind of, you know, real. Right. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Wow. So after, I thought, I thought, why don't you have answers to my doubts? Yeah. <laughs> so it was after, after encounters like that, I finally decided that Christianity, Christianity must not have any answers. And right. it seemed to me, even as a 16-year-old, um, it seemed to me a matter of intellectual honesty that if you didn't have good reasons for something, you should not say you believe it, whether right. it was Christianity well, or anything else. And so yeah. I consciously left my... Christian upbringing behind and said, I guess it's up to me to figure out what is true. But because I had had a Christian upbringing, I did understand very quickly um, (laughs) what the implications were. If there was no God, 
was there any meaning to life? Well, clearly not. We're just an accident. Life is an accident kicked up by chance on a piece of rock flying through empty space. There's mm-hmm. no purpose to life. Um, is there, you know, is there a foundation for ethics? No, clearly not. It's just, you, you know, you, what's true for you, what's true for me. I was the one in my uh, group of friends in high school who was arguing that uh, there, a friend of mine said, oh, she's so wrong in what she's doing. And I said, you can't say anyone's right or wrong. I was the one wow. for, I didn't have a word for it back then, but I was right, right. moral. That you knew what it was. Pardon? Yeah, but you, you didn't have a word for it, but you knew what it was. It was relativism, you know. Yeah. I learned that yeah. word when I went to Libri. Right. <laughs> Libri gave me a label for a lot of the isms that I absorbed and didn't know I'd absorbed them. I even became basically a skeptic because I thought if all I have is my puny brain in the vast scope of time and space, then the idea that I could find some sort of ultimate, eternal, hmm. universal truth, ridiculous. It seemed to me to be obviously ridiculous that I could have any sort of real truth. So I went pretty rapidly into skepticism and, and relativism and, and determinism. Uh, we can't really make, we can't make choices anyway, because we're just determined by natural selection. Um, right. I arrived at Libri. Those were the questions I had to work out. Um, hmm. I say hmm. the, the most important one was, is there any truth at all? Schaefer used to call that pre-evangelism. He said, before you get mm-hmm. to the gospel, you sometimes have to break through the secular ideas, that, the, the barriers that people have. Yeah. Primary one being the concept of truth, as you know from mm-hmm. books. That's that was the one that he focused on. That you well, know, you know, the, the, with with the greatest emphasis. And sure enough, that that really was my case. I first had to work yeah. through is there such a thing as an a universal objective truth at all before I could consider whether Christianity was that truth. Yeah. It was questions. I, I, when I went to Libri, therefore, they really answered each of these questions. We, I had to work through moral relativism. Uh, I had to work through, is there such a thing as truth? I had to work through, are we just you know, products of evolution and determined by natural forces? Every one of these questions and other things I sat down and argued with and discussed until I was persuaded that Christianity had a better answer. So it was, it was really an intellectual, more than maybe more than most people, I really had to be convinced it was true. See, I, see, I, I had given Christianity a chance. I'd asked my yeah. questions, it let me down. So I yeah. was not interested in going back unless I was really persuaded it was true. Getting to your book a little bit, you 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 talk a lot about the the fact value split, and and you kind of alluded to that even in your own testimony that 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 was a little bit of, I think the culture that a lot of people grow up in, right? That that facts are things that you can test, and then on the other end of that, everything's sort of preference, and you see that 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 worked out today, um, that that now today people are it's it's crazy how they they can be angry and want justice on one level but then on the other end they they totally have reduced the very things that would ground justice and right or wrong as a preference it, it's it's amazingly incongruent but to to make it more about maybe the the this topic of sexual brokenness can you talk a little bit about the body person dichotomy because i found that very interesting and and you say that that's one of the key drivers um, behind all of the sexual or a lot of the sexual brokenness that we see and that maybe we need to know first 
the worldview that's driving these things before we even just kind of go after them as symptoms rather than causes. Can, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I find it easiest if we just jump in with an example. Most people are um, pretty aware of the abortion debate. But what they don't know is that today, most bioethicists, most professional bioethicists, agree that life begins at conception. Yeah. Evidence from DNA and genetics is just too strong to deny it. So they no longer deny that the, that the fetus is human. Um, but their attitude is summed up in a recent article that came out with this title. And the title was, Who Cares If Abortion Destroys a Life? In yeah. other words, mm. what they say is, as long as the fetus is biologically human, genetically human, um, physiologically human, what we can know scientifically, in other words, that's when you talk about the fact value dis- distinction, on the level of fact, bioethicists, medical people today agree that life begins at conception. But they say that's not enough to qualify for human rights. The fetus mm. has to earn the right to life by achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning, mental abilities. And only then does it acquire the status of being a person in legal terms. And so essentially what's happened to the human being is that it's been split into two parts. You can be biologically human and yet not a person until some time later. So it's a a fractured, fragmented view of what it means to be a person. You're, You're essentially a body at one point, but not a person till later. So that's that body-person dualism. Mm-hmm. And what it means is being, being human is no longer enough for human rights because they will acknowledge that the fetus is human, but deny that it therefore qualifies for human rights. So that's what we're up against today is being human is not enough for human rights. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and that's, 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 that's the most obvious example of the body person dualism. I find people can see it better there and then you can apply it to the other uh, ethical areas as well. Obviously on the intellectual and philosophical level, the dualism I think is, is a conversation, but would you find that on the street level, people, it's really more just about personal autonomy that that they just want to do what they want to do. And they'll, they'll even hold sort of contradictory ideas about the world and they won't even really care as long as they can just remain in control. And that's really what this is about. Oh, I'm really careful not to ascribe psychological motivations to people. Sure. Because, um, you know, when I was struggling as a, as an agnostic, Christians did that to me all the time. Right. right. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't take my questions seriously and mm-hmm. debunk them by saying, well, it's really because you want to party more on the weekends. You know, you don't want to. Right. More. Which was also true, probably. I, unfortunately, it was not. Oh. <laughs> I was not wild. <laughs> um, so, and for, for some people, I'm sure it is. Um, but hmm. for me, you know, I, I'm very careful. To, what I appreciated about going to Labrie is they didn't do that. Sure. But, okay. And it was Christians who did not do that. They mm-hmm. took they took your questions at face value because we're made in God's image. Mm-hmm. And we're, everyone has a mind. Everyone thinks right. whether that's the main objection or not. Maybe really there is a psychological issue behind it. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, we're made in God's image, and we have to take questions seriously. 
even people who are not quote unquote intellectuals still need to make sense of life. And remember you, you were at Liberty. Remember Schaefer's one of his key lines was it's important to give honest answers to honest questions. Right. And you should always assume at the outset, at least that their questions are honest because even if there's psychological issues lurking under the surface, it could be both, you know, they often still do want to make sense of things. And so you deal with that first. And then later, as you yeah. get to know them, and maybe you find out the underlying psychological issues as well, then you can deal with those. Yeah, yeah. and that's what, the see, thing you know, that really impressed me about Schaefer is he took everyone seriously. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Everyone. He treated everyone with the same respect. And I think <clears throat> that's what made him such an amazing apologist. Yeah. Look, what were you going to say? And I, well, I was just going to say, I've always really appreciated that as well, both in Schaefer and, and in your writings, uh, Nancy, just the, for us involved in the, like the mission of Steiger is very much about going to the secular culture and sharing Jesus. And as a missionary in that, um, I've always found the thinking of Schaefer and, and uh, your writing, I really enjoyed Saving Leonardo and, and, and your recent book as well, Love Thy Body. Mm-hmm. But just as, just as a, um, a, the thought process behind giving such great uh, bases to help us think through the practical side of evangelism and how to share um, the truth with people today. And I guess kind of relating to Ben's question there of bringing it to that uh, context of sharing Jesus with people on the streets today or in, in clubs, in, in universities um, what you've laid out there, that, that fact divide, that fact value divide and the way people uh, process things today and the questions that they raise has been really helpful to think through um, what to talk about and, and, and to understand what are the questions they're asking. And I think the points you're making there about really respecting um, those questions and where people are coming from is a first step uh, to know how to engage. But I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about that. How do you see this fact uh, value divide um, affecting the way we share the gospel with people today, the way we talk about Jesus. Um, one thing, for instance, I appreciate was um, understanding that often it's not always the scientific proof or the logical proof um, of my faith that is going to be um, what people are looking for today. I understand that was uh, important for you. But for a lot of people today, it seems like that it's, they're not at that, uh, in that realm. They're not only interested in if it's scientifically proven or logically proven that they, they need to understand it some other way. Maybe they're, they're, they're just living more based on their feelings and their opinions for each, each situation. Could, could you help us understand that a little bit more? Yeah. Again, um, I'll refer back to my own experience at Labrie. Um, one of the things that Schaefer did that was so helpful is he helped young non-Christians, when I was there, it was mostly non-Christians, by the way, you know, today it's mostly Christians at, well, maybe all Christians at Labrie, but back then it was very evangelistic. Most of That's another problem. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. Uh, Most of the students were Um, non-Christians. One of the things that Schaefer did is he helped us to um, get past just our feelings and recognize that we had in fact absorbed ideas and didn't know it that we were mm-hmm. back being driven by a lot of secular ideas. And we didn't know that. We, we had to be taught. And mm-hmm. In fact, uh, let me give you an example. Um, I, I was teaching at a Christian college, and a, one of my students was sitting in the hallway reading a book on postmodernism. So I stopped and said, um, so what are, you, what are you learning? And he looked at me with this astonished look on his face, and he said, I'm learning about myself. I had no idea I had absorbed so many postmodern ideas 
you know, until somebody labeled them and, you know, explained them to me, I had absorbed, I didn't have a critical grid. And so I had simply absorbed all these ideas. Hmm. Or let me give an example from Love Thy Body, since that's the book we're talking about. Um, so a young teenager asked me recently, how do I talk to uh, my friend, for example, who's a lesbian? Um, I said, well, you're, you're lucky she's still your friend to start with. Mm-hmm. Because she knew he, she knew he did not agree that it was um, that he thought it was not moral, but um, I said, you know, help her to recognize that it's not just a matter of doing what I want to do. You're not just being driven by your feelings. You have absorbed secular ideas, and, he, and for for lesbianism or homosexuality, for example, again, you see that body person split. Think of it this way. Nobody really denies that on the level of biology, physiology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, all these scientific things, that males and females are counterparts to one another. That's just how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. To, to embrace a same-sex identity, therefore, is implicitly to contradict that design. It's to say, why should my body have any say in my moral choices? Why should my body inform my sexual identity? We have to help people realize this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body and that the Christian ethic actually expresses a very high view of the body. It says, no, we should respect our body when we frame our understanding of our sexual identity. We should, we should listen to the clues that our body is giving us that our biological sex has great dignity and significance. And the Christian ethic is showing us how to respect the design of our body, to live in harmony with our biological identity. And so th- these are the ideas that are really shaping people's minds, even if they don't know it. And sometimes we have to bring it to the surface and help them to recognize that they've really yeah. absorbed these ideas. And that's one of the things I really appreciate about it, just the way you, you it's asking good questions, it's helping people stop and think and not just accept ideas. And, and a, a lot of your writings, you, you, you describe how it's become such a predominant thing and people um, just accept stuff without really thinking it through. And I, I've seen that as well on, on the ground and in different situations. And I, I found it very helpful in um, sharing the gospel with people, especially often through arts and, and music. Uh, we, you know, a lot of us have bands and different things. We use that in the mission, but just um, helping people stop in their tracks and think again. And you kind of sometimes in a way you write, you, you turn the table on people and on the predominant mindset. Like there's one one piece, I think, in chapter three of Love Thy Body, where you're just talking about how um, you ask the question, who's bringing religion into the public sphere? And, uh, and how often secular mindset will accuse Christians of saying, oh, you're trying to bring your beliefs into stuff. Yeah. And, then, and then saying, well, but wait a minute, you know, and you point it out, you say, well, so that there are laws being made based on subjective uh, issues, on, on issues that are personal, um, you know, choice or feelings and, and, and things like that, even though they're saying it's scientifically based. And, and yet they've come to a point where that's, that's not possible anymore. And, and so I feel like that's, that's a really useful tool um, in what you're laying out, which is to do that a bit to, in a loving way, to turn the table on people. I, th- I think that's what Schaefer did as well. But just saying, you know, is, is that the only way of seeing this? Have you really thought through um, what that mindset leads to? 
And, uh, and I've enjoyed doing that. I mean, even like in our band, some of our lyrics I write based, inspired by some of that thought process of how, how do I say, wait a minute, yeah. is secular humanism, is relativism the only way? Is that, I mean, I know that's what everybody thinks, but have you ever thought that through and just questioning that in the lyrics? And I think that's a really cool thing to do today. I think we should do more of that. So I appreciate that in what you say. Yeah, I mean, let's take the, the next sort of cutting edge issue is transgenderism. And here the, uh, the body person split is even more obvious because mm-hmm. transgender activists themselves argue that your gender has nothing to do with your biological sex. There's a BBC documentary that says at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. Mm-hmm. And in that, it's the mind that wins. Um, essentially, essentially what transgenderism says is um, your body has not, gives you no clue to your identity. It tells you nothing. But there's actually a, uh, you know, I try to read the intellectuals sometimes, you know, the philosophers, because what they say filters down. And there mm-hmm. is a book written by a Princeton University professor giving a philosophical defense of transgenderism. And yet in the process, this, this professor says transgenderism leads to self-alienation, self-division, um, hmm. self-fragmentation. And then she says the body, the physical body has no meaning at all. It tells us nothing. And to which I think we can say, why should we accept such an extreme devaluation right. of the body? I yeah. read um, I read an interview with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years from age 11 hmm. and had reclaimed her identity as a girl. Hmm. And in this interview, she said, um, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Mm-hmm. I thought the book, had, uh, the interview hmm. came out, my book was already in print so it was too late to include it but it was- yeah that would have been a great a great <laughs> tagline <laughs> a, a book titled love thy body right right yeah. that's amazing yeah, yeah. um yeah. one thing i would love to touch on is <clears throat> you say that the church in reaction to um the transgender movement has kind of gone in one of two extremes in terms of its reactions either it just kind of gives into the culture um and and goes with it or it goes the other way and it becomes too strict and it too narrowly defines gender. And I, I, I found that point especially interesting because I hadn't really thought of that before. Like we, by, by making what it means to be a male or female so strict in terms of, of the qualities and the personalities and, and sort of the, even the giftings, um, that in itself is kind of played into the alienation of people that maybe don't fit into the box that we want them to fit in. Can you talk about that? Because I think that is really, really important. Yeah, I love talking about that because uh, the, the opening story of my chapter on transgenderism um, gives an account of a young boy who gen- had genuine gender dysphoria from a young age. Um, you know, some people who today there's a problem with a lot of teenagers deciding they're transgender with no history of it, but g- genuine gender dysphoria does exist as well. And so this young boy, well, let me tell you, before he was even walking, his babysitter said to his mom, he's too good to be a boy, by which she, you know, he was Mm. compliant and gentle and sweet natured. And, you know, the things we normally stereotypically associate with girls in preschool, 
he was invariably, when his mom came to pick him up, she found him invariably playing with the little girls, not with the little mm-hmm. boys. By, by grade school, he was already experiencing incredible distress over the fact that he did not fit the masculine stereotypes. He was gentle and sweet-natured. And he said, and he said to his parents, I feel the way girls do. I'm interested in things that girls are interested in. God should have made me a girl. And this was, I'm, this was very, I mean, weeping. This was crying. This was, um, this was a lot of distress. By, by um, for age 14, he was scouring the internet for information on uh, sex change therapy. So what did his parents do? Um, I have talked to people who are gender non-conforming. Um, uh, a, a young man who I used to be friends with years ago who was homosexual said, um, you know, I loved art and music and my dad was baffled and kept trying to toughen me up and push me into doing sports. Well, this, these parents did not do that. They made him feel completely accepted in his gender nonconformity. They They said, it's perfectly possible to be a gentle, creative, sensitive, exactly. relational boy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Maybe God has prepare, is preparing you for one of the caring professions. Like and we need we need more more men like that. So, yeah, psychologist, healthcare worker. You know. Yeah. God is preparing for you for one of those. They, they took him through things like the Myers Briggs personality test. I don't know if you know that. Oh yeah. 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 It shows that you, you, men and women can be at both ends of the spectrum. You know, men can be gentle and relational, and women can be take charge and assertive. And they're still fully masculine or feminine. And yeah. they, they kept telling this was their favorite phrase, by the way, the, the parents. Um, they kept telling him, it's not you that's wrong. It's the stereotypes that are wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Well, no, that's really... So, so I, 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 I'm glad that you picked up on that part of the book because I feel very strongly about it, having worked closely with him and um, it's somebody who is truly gender dysphoric and clearly did not fit the gender stereotypes. They are the most likely to, to identify either as, as homosexual or transgender. And often it's totally unnecessary. If the church would help them to realize it's yeah. really good for you to be who you are yeah, absolutely. You know, it's that, uh, that's such a great point because I've met so many guys that are so creative and so sensitive, and uh, uh, and then they're they're told, well, that's because you're supposed to be a part of this. You know, it's because you're not you're homosexual or something, and and uh, they kind of feel almost forced uh, to come to that conclusion. And it's, it's it's such a great point. You know, one of the things you said that really has been on my heart a lot is how Labrie was mainly uh, non-Christians that were there uh, searching, you know, and, and, uh, and how Francis Schaeffer provided this opportunity for them to come and, and to, to ask their questions and, and to understand why Jesus is, is a relevant thing for them to consider. And now how it's mostly, if not only, Christians at Labrie. What, what do we do to make apologetics evangelistic again? How do we get it out of the church? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, Schaefer was an evangelist at heart. Yeah, for sure. Conference, conference one way, he was once asked, you know, do you consider yourself um, a theologian or a philosopher? And he said, neither, I'm an evangelist. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So he was always um, 
using, you know, people look at his work and he, they see that he interacted with the arts and with philosophy and with culture. And they think, oh, he's, he's a philosopher. No, it was always in the interest of helping Christians to understand how non-Christians think. To really understand them, you have to know the history of Western thought. Um, you have to see where ideas came from. You need to see the context. You have to understand how this idea led to that idea, which led to that idea. And that's why we think the way we do today. Yeah. I have to see how, what, um, you know, I, I came to Libri. I, I, I was going to school in Germany at the time, studying at the Heidelberg Conservatory of Music. I play the violin. And so I was especially drawn by the fact that Schaefer had such an appreciation for the art. Yeah. Again, a lot of it for him was, look how ideas percolate down into society through the arts. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's crucial that we learn to understand secular ideas when they come to us, not in words where they're easier to recognize, but when they come to us through plot and storyline and characterization or mm-hmm. composition of a painting. Mm-hmm. That's the way most of us pick up. Most people, most people don't say, hey, I need a philosophy of life, and they go sign up at their local university philosophy class no no they pick up their ideas about life from the books they read and the movies they watch and the music the lyrics of the music that they listen to and so it's crucial for christians to be able to read so to speak read worldviews when they come to us in these artistic forms as well but again i encounter this all the time because i teach apologetics by the way that's that's what i do Um, i teach at houston baptist university and my field is apologetics and i'm constantly telling my students, why are we doing this? It's mm-hmm. so that ultimately you can understand the thinking of the secular person who's sitting next to you so that you can understand how to present the gospel more effectively. That's the yep. mm-hmm. goal. That's the, you know, if, if you lose that goal, and then this just becomes dry intellectual stuff. That's you know, the whole we've, uh, goal. We've applied that quite a, quite a lot in our mission school. We have a mission school in Germany in the Dresden area uh, as part of uh, our organization. And one of the things we've, yeah, we've done great quite a bit of... Yeah, it'd be great to have you come. Yeah, it would. It would. But one of the things we've yeah. done quite a bit of and, and, and partly inspired by, by your work and Schaefer's work is just, just really understanding how, uh, well, pop culture today communicates so much about the world around us. And, and I find it fascinating always seeing a lot of, uh, for instance, the ideas you can describe in, in a more academic book like yours uh, coming out in the in the music and in the art um, around us and then and then trying to understand it through that as well so often we'll do sessions where we say understanding the trends of the global youth culture today and we'll be looking at what are the recent biggest hits on on youtube what are the youtubers that are drawing uh, most people what what are the songs that are being sung as hits on the radios and just understanding um, the cry that comes through that from from a generation that's lost that that's seeking for something and isn't finding it and uh, I, I find that that's often a way also of helping uh, the church today get get a heart for people outside, not only understand the way they think, but also realize um, some of those heartfelt needs and and really recognize how God sees that and, and get a heart for people and say, I, I need to do something. I need to get out there because people are, are, are crying out for, for relationships, for meaning, for purpose. Yeah, and things. the other side of it, uh, and the other side of it is, um, having answers if we don't have if we don't understand christianity as a full-blown worldview then we have answers alternative secular worldviews and Mm -hmm. 
take take the issues I deal with in Love Thy Body. Um, a lot of times I get pushback from Christians. Hmm. They, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not secularism that has produced a low view of the body in Western culture. It's Christianity. After all, there's a reason we have terms like puritanical. Uh, or as one of my students, my, one of my grad students put it, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. Hmm. So we have to back up and say, well, why, why has the Christian church lost its own heritage in this area? When the early church first emerged, uh, it, it faced a, a, a culture that also had a low view of the physical body, though for different reasons. The early church faced worldviews like Platonism and Gnosticism that taught that this world is, is the realm of death, decay, and destruction. And in fact, they called the, the, the body the prison house of the soul. And the goal of salvation was to escape the material world. The material world was, because it was intrinsically evil, was not created by the highest God. It was created by a low-level deity, mm. uh, an evil God, because no self-respecting God would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. So in this context... Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary. It taught that it was the highest God, the supreme deity, not an evil God who created this world. And therefore, this world, the material world, is intrinsically good. Mm-hmm. The greatest scandal at the time was the idea that that same God had entered into the material world and taken on a physical body. The yeah. carnation was the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape the physical realm as Gnosticism taught people should aspire to do. But what did he do then? Hmm. He came back in right. a whole body. To the, to the ancient Greeks, this was not spiritual progress. Yeah, he made breakfast for his disciples. Yeah, right. he resurrected Christ. I mean, how's that for a, for a picture, huh? amazing exactly so but oh and then and then one more thing at the end of at the end of time uh what is god going to do he's not going to scrap the material world as as if he made a mistake the first time around try something new no he's going to restore and renew and redeem this world and we will live on this world in renewed bodies the apostle the apostles creed affirms the resurrection of the body We have to help people see this is an astonishingly high view of the material world. There's nothing like it in Mm. other philosophy or religion. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, I think Chad's on mute. Chad? Chad, unmute Sorry. yourself. <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to hide the noise that my family makes from all of you going up and down the stairs and obviously I lost track of <laughs> what you I looked, was your doing. hand motions uh, were very compelling though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so Nancy, um all of us here are either writers or Luke is the the aspire he is a, he is a writer with a book forthcoming and he's so, le- actually he's learning <laughs> how to read yeah that's step he's, one we're yeah. still <laughs> learned how to read first yeah. um and one of the things that intrigues me about writing is is the motivation behind why we write and so when you were writing love thy body what was the one thing that that was like you know even through the hard 
challenges of are these words right? Am I communicating properly? Is anyone going to get this? How's it going to translate all of those things? What was the one thing that you kept saying, but this is why I'm writing it? I wanted to counter the negative stereotypes that Christians are bigots and haters. And I did that by presenting the Christian worldview in positive terms. Like what I just said a moment ago, Christianity has a higher view of the physical realm and of the physical body than any other worldview. And when I countered homosexuality or transgenderism, I all, you know, I not once said because it's wrong and, you know, it's an abomination to God. And, you know, the- right. You should repent. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I that's true. It's just not. Yeah. That's not your starting point when you first talk to somebody right. who's about these issues. Instead, I talked about living in harmony with your body, respecting your biological sex, being in your, your, your mind and emotions, being in tune with your body, um, that, the body having value and significance, Hear, hearing, the, hearing the clues from your body. Uh, and also, so where does the negative view of the body come from in secular thought? Helping people see where it came from. It really comes out of a secular evolutionary view that the body is the product of mindless, purposeless forces, and therefore it has no intrinsic purpose. In fact, there's an um, outspoken lesbian. You probably have read works by Camille Paglia. And she actually defends homosexuality in exactly those terms. She says, yes, nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. And then this is her exact words. She says, why not defy nature? After Hmm. all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Uh So the implication is if the body is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, it has no, it gives no clue to our identity. It has no intrinsic Hmm. purpose that we're morally obligated to respect. We may do with it as we see fit. Hmm. And it's interesting that I found among my secular friends, the argument that they found most persuasive is one from environmentalism. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, because what we've learned is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, we need to work with the natural order. We can't work against it. We may not do as we see fit right? Hmm. uh, when it comes to the environment. And so what Christians are saying is when it comes to these moral issues, what we are saying is we should respect the intrinsic purpose built into our bodily design. We should work we should uh, we should live in harmony with our biological with our biological nature. So again, uh, to answer your question, I was looking for ways to convey uh, Christian ethic in positive terms um, to c- counter the negative stereotypes. That's that's such a compelling point. Right? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Well, if I can if I can just kind of close with this. So we we were um, we had on our podcast last week, uh, Pastor Greg Boyd. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. A very interesting, interesting, brilliant man. And um, we we talked uh, similar on uh, around similar topics. And uh, one thing he said is that he really believes the first step uh, for the church, Big C Church, uh, as it relates to this issue, is is we need to offer an apology in terms of the way the church has dealt with the whole homosexual issue. 
um, that that and love for us and kind of having a broken heart for the lost is such a big value of ours. Do you do you agree with his perspective? Of course, that's oversimplifying what he said, but does that need to kind of be our posture as it relates to this, that, that we really need to start with how we've not necessarily handled this in the right way? Well, we have, in fact, um, Christians as a whole have, in fact, treated sexual sins as worse than any other sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have treated homosexuality as even worse than heterosexual sins. And I think we should admit that that, that was wrong. That was a mistake. And it has driven people away from the church and it has made people feel like they can't come to the church with, with their brokenness, with, Mm -hmm. um, with their issues, uh, sexual issues. Um, And if we want people, you know, there's a saying that the, uh, the church is a hospital for sinners. Well, we need to let prospective patients know that we're going to be gentle with their woundedness. Mm-hmm. They realize that this yeah, is the right. place where they can come with their with with their with their brokenness. So I, I'm not. I'm a little concerned about that idea of apologizing because um, we're fighting on two sides, and we sh- should never get them confused. There is a public activism, and on the public side of homosexual and transgender activists are extremely aggressive and extremely hostile to Christianity. And we need Christians who know how to deal with that, who are yep. strong, who yep. are, mm-hmm. or who know how to fight in the right way. Yeah. Public side. And in that arena, an apology is seen as a sign of weakness. And yep. It's probably not the right way to go. And then you've got the pastoral side. Mm-hmm. Pastoral side is where we need to reach out much more effectively in saying, you know, all sins are the same. My sins are just the same as it's just you know, equally wrong. I'm, I'm equally guilty. I'm equally broken. Um, and that we're not standing over you as, as people who think that we're mm. superior. I have, I'm so surprised. I mean, it, it takes me aback when I talk to secular people sometimes and see how much they think Christians are people who think they're holy. <laughs> they're holy. Right. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. never been the Christian message. And so yeah. we do need to counter some of the negative stereotypes that we have, we have allowed to grow about the church. Yeah. So we keep those two angles separate and make sure that um, we recognize that Christians, some Christians are called to one or the other. Hmm. Um, and both, and we need both. We need to support one another in, in both of those, the public the public political side, and then the pastoral personal side. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of what Paul says in second Corinthians 10, five, where he says, we need to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And that's can seem very aggressive, but I think that supports that idea that we need to fight for truth. People yeah. are being destroyed and, and, and it's not mutually exclusive to say that you're going to, you're going to fight for what's true and love people. In fact, I would say that that is loving people ultimately. So that was mm-hmm. brilliantly stated. So, Man, I've, I've been so encouraged by this. Chad Chad typically closes our time here with prayer, so uh, I'll let him do that. But but thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it's yeah. been great. It's Nancy, a is there anything in specific that, that obviously the four of us, but our community at large can be praying for you? Oh, well, thank you. Um, sure. I, I know that, you know, most, I'm a writer, so most of my ministry is through books. 
Yeah. So um, any any prayer, any prayer that my books would be used by God to reach people and help and and help them understand the, the issues we've talked about, how to live more consistently as a Christian and how to how to speak more effectively to non-Christians. Um, yeah. that's, that's my constant prayer. So I yeah, well, I, he's answering cool. that in my life for sure. So your books have had huge impact on me for, if you know, I know many others as well, but certainly for in my life, too. So. Thank you. Appreciate that. Is is Amazon.com the easiest or simplest way for people to find your books? Yeah, I think so. Amazon.com or your favorite bookstore. um. I'm holding up your book to our camera guy right now. Not that you need my help, but this book is awesome. Love (laughs) thy body. Uh, Amazon, that was kind of a rhetorical question, Chad. This is 2018. Yes, Yeah, I know, I know. But you never know. I don't know. You're right. I, oh, I, I dismiss Try myself to embar- coming oh, up with any yeah. kind of witty response. I, I have a question from Nigel, Nancy. And then we need to pray for Nancy, but Nigel, yeah. go ahead. Do you mind answering one more question? Oh, sure, sure. So I just he sent me a text. He wants to know if you've ever been abducted by aliens and why. <laughs> and why? Wow. Okay. And why? That's funny because Nigel asked the same thing to Greg Boyd. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. He always asks. So let let Nancy answer. Come on. All right. Sorry. Sorry, Nancy. <laughs> I'm definitely I'm desperately trying to think of some clever. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to dignify that with a response at all. In my so opinion. does that mean no, or does it mean you are and you're embarrassed to talk about it? <laughs> well, let me, let me put it this way: I do have a very close friend who thinks she was abducted. <laughs> <laughs> wow. never quite sure how to answer her <laughs> yeah. is this is this one of those things where it's it's really you but you're saying it's a friend yeah are you saying it's your <laughs> i have a friend i have a friend <laughs> yeah sorry you, know, you, you I can apologize. admit this you can be vulnerable on our podcast you don't have to you know put up a a wall like this yeah. <laughs> anti-alien all right moving on chad all right yeah please, i'm gonna i'm gonna pray before us. this gets yeah, too out of hand you. Um, so, Lord Jesus, um, thank you for Nancy. Thank you for her life. Thank you, God, for her willingness to step into conversations with friends who uh, believe they've been abducted by aliens and uh, everything else that might seem really odd or challenging for us average Christians to step into. Um, use her books mightily, God, even more so than you already have. Use her life mightily. Um, God, would you be glorified in and through her in ways that could only be measured and weighed out by um, your kingdom eternally. Um, we, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you for this time in Jesus name. Yeah. Amen. 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 Well, that uh, was extremely encouraging for me uh, in case you literally just uh, are listening right now. We had an amazing conversation, conversation with Nancy Piercy, um, apologist, author, um, influencer, uh, God is using her in a powerful way, as in my life, and I know thousands of other people as well. Check out her book, Love Thy Body. Yes, it is available on Amazon uh, and other places, Thanks. I'm sure. Uh, if you did not get a chance to listen to this whole thing, I really recommend it. Um, you can, of course, um, that just subscribe to our podcast, Provoke and Inspire. Um, give us a rating and review. That helps the exposure. But otherwise, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to yeah. you next time. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Provoke and Inspire, the official Come and Live podcast. To hear past podcasts, go to comeandlive.com. Got a question for the guys? Send it in to provokeandinspire at comeandlive.com.